0: Dr. Chad Ilamudel joined ScopeMD to discuss the evolving role of telehealth in medicine. Dr. Ilamudel is an assistant professor at the University of Michigan, member of the Institute of Healthcare Policy and Innovation, and director of the Telehealth Research Incubator at the University of Michigan, which is focused on studying the impact of telehealth on healthcare costs, quality, access, and patient care. Dr. Ilamudel, thank you so much for joining me today on ScopeMD.
1: Thank you, Lori. Happy to be here.
0: I was wondering if we could first start to have you outline what changes have occurred for telehealth in the last month.
1: Wow, there's been a lot of changes in the last month for telehealth that um and there's been more advancements in the last month than there have really been in the last 10 years. And so the the changes can be thought of in two different ways. There's federal changes to the Medicare program and then there's also a lot of state changes that occurred, you know, all all due to the the pandemic. And so at the federal level and also at the state level for Medicaid and other private payers in the state, there's the biggest change was allowing patients to connect from home. That was probably the number one change that occurred. It was a regulation that was a real big barrier to the adoption of telehealth for many, for many decades, really. And, um, that regulate that, the deregulation of of that and allowing patients to connect from home was probably the biggest change. There were other changes that occurred. For instance, the federal government said it was okay to use any type of technology that you want, um, whether or not it's HIPAA compliant. Um, There were a few exceptions there. Uh, They also allowed healthcare providers to waive copays to incentivize patients to use telehealth and to stay at home. And all these uh, regulatory changes together really Increase the adoption of telehealth across the across the country.
0: So prior to last month, how would a patient access telehealth if they couldn't do it at their home? Well, there were some states that were
1: ahead of this, and some commercial payers that did allow uh, patients to connect from home. But if you were a Medicare patient, then in order to connect. You would have to go to a medical facility that's located in a rural area or a health professional shortage area, and you can only connect from that facility. And that's called that's a rule called the originating site requirement. And that was um, in place for Medicare. It was slowly lifted for Medicaid programs across the country. About twenty nine Medicaid programs allowed patients to connect from home, and it was slowly going away for private insurance. But in the Mar- in March twenty twenty, the Medicare program took that away most medicaid programs did that as well and many private insurers followed suit
0: so now we have providers doing telehealth that weren't doing telehealth 6 weeks ago do you have some strategies for them as they're learning a new skill set
1: there's a couple strategies number 1 is to try to keep it as simple as possible it's easy to get it's easy to get overwhelmed when you think about telehealth do i need You know, sophisticated equipment, but you really don't. All it is is a video connection between a patient and provider. And so the video connection can be as simple as using FaceTime, which is allowed uh, during this public health emergency, or as sophisticated as using a tool that's built into your electronic medical record. There's a lot of free tools that are out there that you can use as well. So when you think about just that simple interaction, um, you'll realize it's a lot simpler than you would think. The second strategy is to know your state rules. And the reason I say that is because um, there's a lot of press releases about what Medicare has done, but that doesn't necessarily take away what the state is regulating. So it's important to, there's a couple of resources that you can use for that. The Center for Connected Health Policy, um, the Federation of State Medical Boards, and even the American Telemedicine Association have good state by state resources that allow you to make sure that you are not violating some a rule that is deregulated at the federal level, but still in place at the state level.
0: What type of visits do you think are best suited based on the work you've done in studying in terms of uh, visit types that seem most amenable to telehealth?
1: Yeah, that's an interesting question. I think at during the the COVID 19 pandemic, um, it should be every visit. And so, if you can adequately provide medical care to a patient, even if it's not perfect medical care, but you have the benefit of keeping patients at home, then you should use telehealth. After the pandemic is over, we'll, we'll have to think how to use this strategically. And um, I think, really, what I've told our faculty in our division, in our department, is that any or any clinic appointment that does not require a physical exam or a diagnostic test to be performed in the office can be offered to the patient as telehealth. Now, what you'll realize is that there's a lot of patients out there that don't want to, they would rather uh, come in. So you have to be respectful of that and sensitive to those, those patient preferences. But really, any patient that doesn't require a physical exam or a diagnostic test is eligible for um, a video consultation.
0: Any other barriers that you've um, heard from providers in terms of using telehealth? Interestingly,
1: the regulatory barriers were probably not the biggest barrier. Although it was a big barrier, resistance to change changes um, across any type of um, healthcare delivery model is one of the biggest barriers. And we were able to overcome that because there was strong motivation to keep patients at home. Combined with the regulatory barriers, it's re- really created a ripe environment for the adoption of telehealth. Now the barriers are different. So now many providers are interested in using it. They have already kind of got their feet wet already. And so the barriers that we have to think about are what are the populations that are left out And so some of the patients have difficulty connecting, you know, I've heard that with some elderly patients have difficulty connecting, patients that live in rural areas that don't have the internet speed uh, to connect, and then also patients that have, that are uh, low income that may not have the technology, the smartphones to connect. And we have to be aware of those populations that may be lost um, due to this, this movement in healthcare delivery.
0: So, do you think like a kiosk model for those patients, or how do we how do we help patients who don't have a smartphone or don't have the equipment?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. I think those are some of the things that we can think about moving forward. Right now, it's just you know phase one, March and April is just to to get providers on board, get them comfortable with the technology. But now as we start to think about what are the resources that those individual populations need, uh, we'll have to create those resources. And they're going to be different. Um, I think for some patients, it's about just having help desk and have someone that's accessible on demand so that when they're about to perform a visit, if they have a problem, they can call someone and get connected right away. The other thing is that you can make the technology easier for certain patients to use. There's some, I've actually (laughs) talked to many different health systems and sort of talked to their, or, you know, learned about the different approaches that they have. And there's some, some systems and practice groups that have 20 steps to log on and there's others that just require a patient to click on a link. So making it easier is better. Uh, for patients that are in rural areas that don't have the internet speed to connect via video, there should be some alternatives. You can partner with primary care offices in that in those areas or kiosks would be helpful. Um, other things that we, you know, broadly think about uh, to help those populations and then finally for low-income patients you may if you think that this is a good return on investment for your practice or your health system then you may want to invest in technology that they can use or borrow or lease for you know for their care especially if they're using a lot of telehealth um, because they have the comorbidities that require them to come into the come into the clinic often.
0: Are we able to get, any sort of vital signs remotely through technology? For example, blood pressure, anything like that? Or is that not feasible right now?
1: Oh, absolutely. Uh, those Those tools have been around for a long time. They've just never been fully integrated into, I should say, general care, because there's certainly pilot programs that have proven the effectiveness of uh, using what are called remote monitoring tools or tools that uh, allow you to check those vitals. And so, you know, there are some systems that have um, used the collection of vitals. Uh, we, in our department specifically, we haven't, but the tools are available. It's just a matter of how do you integrate it into your um, overall practice.
0: And then are there any recommendations you have in terms of the documentation piece that need to be addressed in the telehealth setting?
1: Yeah. And I, I think documentation, billing and documentation is uh, is often very worrisome for healthcare providers because uh, it seems like it's very different, but in reality, the documentation and billing is very similar. And um, you need to document enough so that you've first taken care of the patient's needs, and then second, you've met the requirements that are that are laid out by. Many of the payers, and the requirements for telehealth versus in person are actually very similar. And they, um, you'll see that you know usually putting in information like the amount of time that you spent on the visit, your entire medical discussion, and many of the same things that you do for in person care is the same for um, for telehealth care too. Telehealth is just a simply a mode of mode of providing healthcare delivery, and everything that you do to make sure that you've adequately taken care of the patient and and documented is the same for in person and for video care.
0: Do you envision healthcare being more efficient using this mode of delivery?
1: Absolutely. <laughs> and so I think that this pandemic has really ra- you know kind of raised the awareness of telehealth to to the general provider population but um, for folks like myself who've been performing video visits with patients since 2016, we we kind of saw it coming. Um, there's been, if you look at some of the biggest changes in healthcare and some of the big players like uh, Amazon, for example, when they've entered healthcare, uh, they've looked at tools like telehealth to make care more efficient. And it's never more efficient the first 10 times you do it. And then after that, it becomes a, a much more easier way of delivering care.
0: Yeah, because I was thinking the outpatient setting, you know, we we have all these patients in rooms and we have a physician jumping from room to room and this model of telehealth where potentially we could see, I don't want to say faster, but again, more efficiently and maybe recognizing patients' time than we had in the past.
1: That's absolutely correct. I mean, you can, so we've we've essentially... Practiced in a provider-centric model where we walk from room to room, patients are there. Uh, where we don't necessarily have to pay attention to how they got there or how much time they spent to get there. So it's very provider-centric delivery. This is much more patient-centric um, as long as the patient, you know, is on board with it. But it, it is also provider-centric too because it it removes some of the some of the extras that come along with an office visit. So a patient standing in line to check in, to check out, to, you know, they can fill all their paperwork ahead of time and you see everything. You don't have to, you know, wait. There's, there's a lot of efficiencies that when you're, when you're performing video visits, especially when you're performing a back-to-back-to-back, it's, I find it easier to stay on schedule because of the inherent inefficiencies that come with physical movement. <laughs>
0: And do you think most healthcare systems have the infrastructure in place to support it? Or has there been, in the last six weeks, a lot of work r- related to that?
1: Yeah, there's definitely been a lot of work to it. And it it, it kind of depends on your leadership, uh, whether or not you want to take uh, a basic approach to it or a very highly sophisticated, integrated approach. And if you are on the more basic side, then the tools that you need are very simple. I mean, there are tools that are out there where the patient does not need to download anything, you don't need to download anything, or you just you just need to download a, an app and um, you send a link to a patient and they connect. And so some of those really simple models are easy for all types of practices to incorporate into their care. When you kind of move towards the big enterprise solutions, those become a bit more difficult and require a lot more resources to, to implement.
0: So the telehealth research incubator that you're the director of looks at quality and costs. How do you see telehealth improving quality and decreasing costs?
1: That's a great question. So, um, you know, I'm excited about the post-pandemic phase, because we'll, you know, we'll have large numbers to see the impact of telehealth on uh, on a population basis. I think that it could, um, there's a lot of ways that it could improve quality access and costs. I mean, for quality and access, you can enable, by giving patients access, you can enable them to not only quote-unquote shop around, but also um, have quicker access and avoid delays in care. Um, there's many patients that will hold off on seeing a physician or, or another clinician because they just don't want to go into the office or they can't take time off of work. Um, I've done a lot of video visits where patients have been at work and they go into the break room and they're more compliant with care that way. They are, you know, they're more willing to come see a healthcare provider early on. So in the quality and access area, there's a lot of, um, easy ways that telehealth can be beneficial. It'll be interesting to see what happens with cost. Um, So if you think about it, in a lot of ways, telehealth or a video visit is supposed to be a direct substitute for a in-person visit. In fact, Medicare right now is actually paying the same. So will there be a a difference in cost, we're not quite sure. There's a couple different ways that it can go. Uh, One is that you can see telehealth increasing costs. With the research incubator, we're actually doing a number of studies using large data sets to look at, well, when you have a visit, do you, um, for a specific condition, let's say upper respiratory infections, do you end up having the issue resolved? Or do you see a provider within seven to 14 days with a similar diagnosis? And so what we're finding in some of our prelim data is that sometimes these telehealth visits may lead to more downstream uh, visits. In that case, it's, it's an expansion of care and not a substitute. Now that work is prelim- preliminary, so there's a lot more that we have to look into. But the uh, on the other hand, it could lead to reduced Total costs of care. So, if you look at an episode of care, or let's say that someone presents for uh, comes to a clinic for a specific diagnosis, if they came to clinic, they may get a host of tests done just because they're there. And so, if you look over the course of seven days or fourteen days, they may their total cost of care may actually be lower. So, uh, many times people view telehealth as a, there's a potential because it's easier, it's a lower barrier of entry that there may. It may lead to rising costs in the long run, but there are certainly opportunities for it to help reduce costs.
0: Now, thinking back to the clinic setting where usually you see a nurse first and then the physician, that doesn't apply in tel- telehealth, right? There isn't a nurse first and then a doctor. How, what's the interplay there?
1: That's a good question. It's an important question too, because again, we're sort of in this phase of just getting the adoption done and then we have to think about refinement. And so things that patients have brought up with me in the past, so we had a focus group with patients and one patient in particular, I remember said that her entire, the value of her empo- appointment was not the five minute interaction that she has with the physician. It's actually the 20 minute interaction that she has with the nurses in that clinic that help explain um, the next steps and, and really help her debrief after that visit. So for her, the video consultation would have low value because it's just that high level information that she, you know, that she's getting from the physician. So when we think about the interaction of healthcare staff, healthcare staff are extraordinarily important for patients to, uh, for, you know, for coordination of care. And then they're also important touch points for patients as well. So there's an opportunity there's there may be potential for that to to go away but as we think about how to refine the delivery of telehealth in the future we have to think well how can those individuals actually be involved in the in the visit you know the technology there's no you've you've probably been on Video conferencing calls with with forty people on it. So you, there's no limit to how you can use the technology. It's just in, integrating it into your workflow and practice. So maybe the ideal way is that you have nursing staff on those visits along with you as you're doing a telehealth visit, or you have the nurses on before or a nurse on afterwards, or an advanced practice provider. And there's numerous ways of working it, but you have to think about what is the how how do your patients derive the most value from your interaction, and then create a An experience that mimics that.
0: Have any providers given feedback in terms of, with so many people working from home and so much action on the um, internet, has there been any issues with connectivity or losing calls, losing video?
1: Yeah, definitely. I think that technical issues, um, even in a a health system like ours, where we've been using this since prior to 2016, we still see in our surveys about 10 to 15% of technical failures. And so there's technical failures on the patient end, there's technical failures on the provider end. And so as you do more, you get better at it. Um, As you do more, you anticipate problems that patients may have, and you provide those resources. So they're going to happen, and you you just kind of find the best way to fix those problems.
0: And then switching the conversation a little bit to the topic of physician burnout, how do we make sure that physicians don't always feel like they have to be on and available for a a video conference with a patient. How how are you guys handling that?
1: Yeah, so it's uh well right now um and in our department um it's kind of been you're you're using telehealth the same way that you would use in-person visits. So we're not available 24 hours a day for in-person visits and so we have scheduled uh video visits now. That scope may change over time, but I think that understanding how the provider wants to deliver this telehealth is going to be really important for practices. And with telehealth, you may not need a staff and you may be able to do visits on the weekends. You may be able to do visits late at night, but you know, it really is important that before you commit to that, that you sort of feel like it is, it's something that you want to do and it's not something that's going to cause you to burn out.
0: In areas where we're seeing more COVID-19 patients, such as Detroit, New York, has there been any effort to use telehealth in the ICU setting, meaning physicians that are not physically present to help out?
1: Tele-ICU, and now I can't speak to those hospitals specifically because I'm just not aware of how they're using telehealth, but I can speak more broadly about tele-ICU. And tele-ICU has been around for a long time, has been used especially in rural areas. It's an area of telehealth where there are hard outcomes that show that they can improve mortality by having an intensivist available immediately as a patient is uh, decompensating or to be able to expand a skill set across many, many hospitals. So uh, teleICU is a great tool. How much it's being used currently during this pandemic at specific hospitals, I'm not sure. Uh, But if you really, if you think about it, it is it's a great way to reduce the use of PPE. Um, and reduce exposure risk to employees. And I I hope it's being used.
0: Have you heard of any patients who are concerned about privacy issues using things like Facebook, Zoom, whatever the platform is?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think patients are concerned about privacy and security, even if you're not using a platform that's, you know, that may be less secure than the electronic medical record. And so, even when we were using the electronic medical record, patients have worried about um, whether their information's available on the internet, whether someone can hack into the visit. That's why I think it's, even though the federal government said it's okay to use non-HIPAA compliant technology during this pandemic, I think it's important to just take the investment and take the time and investment to use some sort of HIPAA compliant software and sign a business associates agreement with your vendor so that that information is secure. I wouldn't necessarily recommend I wouldn't recommend recording the visits without um having the patient's consent and making sure that the patient feels very comfortable with the visit and so that type of technologies or that type of security is required and even though it's not technically required during this pandemic, it makes sense to include that in your overall telehealth strategy.
0: Any other advice about how to make the best patient experience using telehealth?
1: I think one thing that helped us a lot at the beginning was. Following up on every failure. So every time a patient, well, f- from the beginning, when when a patient decides they don't want to do it, trying to understand why they don't want to do it. If they try to connect but have difficulty connecting, calling them have or having a staff member call them to figure out what happened. And as you learn, you start to recognize patterns and you, you'll be able to solve problems more quickly. So if you're very proactive at the beginning to fix the issues as they come up, you'll you'll have a much better seamless experience. And and you have to ask also. And I think that when you look at patient satisfaction surveys, they're always going to say patients are satisfied, but those are patients that were able to successfully complete a visit. You have to think about all those that weren't able to or those that, you know, had a hard time, but they just don't want to talk about it. So if you ask the specific questions, you know, was the was the educational material helpful? Was the call well, one thing we're doing is actually calling patients right before the visit or a week out before the visit to make sure that they're all set up and ready to go. And that's been really helpful for patients, but also for us to learn what the problems are. And so uh, was, was any interaction that you had prior to the visit helpful to set up the visit? Those types of questions are important to ask patients so that you can learn um, their side of the story and you can help to improve it.
0: You had mentioned some resources available to providers online. Are there specific resources on the telehealth research incubator website that you would recommend?
1: Um, so we don't have specific resources on that on our particular website because we're uh, we're more focused on research than than telehealth operations. But I think the biggest resources out there are the American Telemedicine Association website. The Alliance for Connected Care has a COVID dashboard which has state by state regulations. As soon as a, a governor puts out an executive order, it ends up on that website. The Center for Connected Healthcare Policy, and then also the AMA has a. A very American Medical Association has a very good website that has billing rules and a lot of information about how to implement telehealth. so those are kind of the top resources that I would recommend and I would actually recommend looking at all of them because it each each one has specific pieces of information that are relevant.
0: What other thoughts do you have about telehealth?
1: So I think you know in general, telehealth is finally here to stay <laughs> and uh, i um uh, it's unfortunate that it took a a pandemic to uh, to bring telehealth here, but I think that there were a lot of regulatory changes. Some of those are going to go away, but I think some of the big ones are going to stay. It would be very surprising to me if the ability for patients to connect at home is is suddenly taken away after the pandemic. I think providers and patients are going to get used to it, and also that it fits the trend. Medicare has been slowly deregulating telehealth, and Medicaid has already done that, and a lot of private. Private insurers have done done that already before the pandemic, so I think that that is going to stay. And if that stays, that kind of creates this all payer environment for the reimbursement for telehealth. So if that if that continues, then I think that telehealth will be will be a natural extension of our practices. My worry, and this is some of the stuff that I'm working with some of the physicians over at and healthcare leaders over at Michigan Medicine, where we're thinking about how do we not step back. So once the pandemic is over, I think it's the path of least resistance is to go back to seeing patients in clinic and you'll quickly, the skills in telehealth will atrophy. So we're, we're thinking about how do, we, how do we make those refinements so that the technology and the, and the capabilities are more patient friendly, they're more provider friendly. Um, how do we integrate this into practice? And I think that's going to be a, a big thing moving forward once some of the regulations are taken back.
0: Well, Dr. Ilamudo, thank you so much for your time and your thoughts. I'm excited that telehealth is here. And um, as we move
1: forward, we look to figure out what's the best way to deliver it.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Scope MD. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider sharing it with a friend. And don't forget to subscribe so that you don't miss an upcoming episode.